This is Joe Alcock, and this is the Evolution Medicine Podcast, podcast number one. And this is a podcast that will be done periodically in combination with the Evolution Medicine blog, which I have been the author of since 2008. So why have an Evolution Medicine podcast? And I'm a big fan of podcasts. I enjoy listening to them. And I think it's an excellent way to get information out to people that otherwise might not uh, have access to free, open access medical education. This is the FOAM movement, of which I am an advocate. And the other question might be, why have a podcast on evolution and medicine? And this is not a brand new area of inquiry. Um, I have taught a class on evolutionary medicine at the University of New Mexico, again, since 2008. So we are entering our ninth year, I believe, of teaching that uh, this fall. And I also teach evolutionary medicine to... School of Medicine students at the University of New Mexico. And so there's a need, I think, for teaching evolutionary medicine. But again, uh, the name of the game here is to get the broader message of evolutionary medicine out to a broader audience. What is evolutionary medicine? It's the intersection of evolutionary biology and biomedicine. So it's everything from the evolution of aging, answering questions of why do we age, through questions of antibiotic resistance and uh, resistance traits uh, in pathogens um, and sort of everything in between. Uh, so we'll have a chance to talk about a lot of those things during this podcast. But today's topic is going to be this idea about what is normal in medicine and the question of when should we intervene as doctors to make things more normal perhaps or uh, you know intervene on a sick patient. And I should mention that today's podcast will be based on a presentation that I gave at uh, last year's um, meeting of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health, uh, held in 2015 in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, and I'm also happy to say that you know, we just concluded the second conference of the International Society of Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. Uh, this was in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, exciting conference, lots of great presentations amazing uh, time for question and answers, uh, explored a huge broad area of evolutionary medicine. Well, today's topic is going to be uh, a new normal. So identifying normal function and abnormal results. And this, this is going to address the question of when, uh, when should we look at an abnormal test result, and I'll, I'll define that in a second, and when should we intervene? I've been interested in, you know, septic shock and uh, people that present with kind of life-threatening infectious complications um, ever since I was in medical school at UCLA. And I remember learning about uh, sepsis as a maladaptive way of the body responding to infections. And I, I was told many, many times, and you can see evidence of, um, of this kind of thinking in 
newspaper articles, uh, current journal articles in medicine. But the idea is this, that it's not so much the infection that kills you, it's really the body's response that kills you. So if that's the case, then it makes sense that we should, as doctors, intervene and do what we can to reduce the complications that arise from this body, the body's response. So an immune system out of control, for instance. Um, and this has led to a search for you know, immune regulators, kind of silver bullet therapies, things that we can do to kind of turn off the body's response to sepsis. But I always thought this was very curious because um, many of the, of the things that we see during patients with septic shock are, gosh, we see them in a bunch of different mammal systems. Um, they seem to be well conserved. Uh, and perhaps some of the findings that we see that we're thinking of, thinking of as being maladaptive, um, kind of the body's way of attacking itself, maybe that these things that we're looking at indeed are not maladaptive. Maybe, what if they're adaptive? So let's, uh, we'll start with a case. Working in the ER, patient comes in, um, they've been sick for less than a day, a uh, little bit of a cough, a little bit of shortness of breath, and we notice there's a temperature of 38.8 Celsius, so that would be febrile, that's a fever. Uh, the heart rate is abnormal, it's 110 beats per minute, that's high. And blood pressure we note is 90 over 60, and that's low. So I don't think that uh, it'd be too much of a stretch to think that in most emergency departments, and I work in a couple at the University of New Mexico, um, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to, to think that the first kind of knee-jerk reaction is to see what we can do to make these things more normal. Um, so temperature 38.8, let's give someone some Tylenol and see if we can make that better, quote-unquote, uh, make them afebrile, so no longer having a fever. The heart rate of 110, maybe we can do something to bring that heart rate down. Blood pressure of 90 over 60, well, we ought to probably give some fluids, maybe some uh, pressors, medications to bring up that blood pressure. So is that a good idea? And you may hear, hear birds chirping in the background. I'm uh, at the moment of this podcast, I'm uh, recording from the Ellis Trailhead in the Sandia Mountains. Uh, in Sibylla National Forest, right outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is a place that I like to go and recreate. Um, plus, right now it's nice and cool here. Uh, it's in the 60s. Um, unlike home in the lower elevations of Albuquerque, which are set to approach 90 degrees today. That's Fahrenheit. So when we think about normal and abnormal, getting back to our case, um, now abnormal and normal findings, um, we have to wonder, well, where, where's the, where does the idea of normal come from? Uh, and, and what's, you know, what, what's up with, with that? And then, so how do we even define abnormal? So, you know, in biomedicine, uh, essentially we describe normal. So normal to be normal blood findings, normal lab results, um, normal, what we think of as normal results are those that fall within about two standard de deviations uh, from uh, the mean. So if you can picture a bell-shaped curve, imagine that the vast majority of the uh, findings are going to fall between those um, uh, two standard deviations above and below. Uh, and then the remainder we think of as being sort of outside uh, the range of normal. So that's what labs will flag as abnormal. That's what many you know, medical devices uh, will uh, you know, alert you 
to a uh, potentially abnormal finding. And of course, these should be age adjusted. Um, kids are different from adults, and we know that there are certain findings which are different for men and women. So, uh, sex may be um, may require some adjustment. And there's some other conditions that we'll talk about here in a second too uh, that I think are relevant. So when we think about you know this bell-shaped curve uh, and what is normal. Um, I'm going to kind of point out a different concept here, and this is the idea of a fitness landscape. Uh, so there are peaks and valleys of adaptiveness, um, and so the high peaks may represent um, a trait uh, which confers fitness. Uh, and you know, we, this is some of the evolutionary biologists used to think about um, uh, in terms of what is the space in which a trait can change over evolutionary time. And I would like to you know introduce the idea that. You know, a fitness landscape when it comes to these normal values and what is normal, um, it might be worth thinking about this fitness landscape as being something which also changes. So in other words, what is normal on one day may not be normal on a second day. Uh, what, what may be best for your fitness, and this is Darwinian fitness um, that promotes your survival and reproduction, may not be uh, optimal um, on, on another day, depending on the conditions. So this is an idea of a human reaction norm. So the, again, we're borrowing another concept from biology and evolutionary biology in particular, and that's the idea of a reaction norm that uh, your phenotype, the way your body is, um, you know, the way, you're, uh, the way we observe uh, your body and the way that you, your body is functioning, um, is different depending on, on conditions uh, that you may find yourself in. So um, a good example of this is um, your hemoglobin level uh, with relationship to altitude. So we know that people that are born in and live in Denver, Colorado, they may have a different hemoglobin. This is, this is a measurement of you know uh, the quantity of red blood cells that you have in your body. Uh, that is higher than what we'd expect to see if you were born or living at um, sea level in Los Angeles. So human reaction norm is, I think, a uh, useful concept to think about. Um, so we know that, you know, this, what we, what we see in terms of higher hemoglobin and altitude is probably adaptive for the people that have um, those findings. So I live in Albuquerque. I spend a lot of time um, sort of spending time recreating and exercising at altitude. You know, right now I'm at about 9,000 feet elevation. So we would presume that the higher hemoglobin I have, just by virtue of you know, exercising and living in a high altitude environment, may actually be good for me in some way. It may not be an abnormal finding for me. So are there other reaction norms in biology and how might these relate to sepsis? So a second example I like to talk about is pregnancy. So we don't, you know, we don't think of um, a finding during pregnancy as being something that we necessarily have to fix and bring back to the level of a non-pregnant person. So I, I brought up the idea of you know, hemoglobin being higher in someone who lives at altitude, someone like myself. Uh, so as re with regard to pregnancy, um, the pregnant state of hemoglobin actually is lower than that of a non-pregnant person. This doesn't mean that you know all people that are undergoing uh, a pregnancy have some sort of a life-threatening or horrible anemia. It uh, doesn't really mean that at all. And in fact, if we tried to fix people by giving them, I suppose, a transfusion or doing some other intervention to normalize pe uh, pregnant women, 
um, that would almost certainly do more harm than good. So that's the other other idea here is that um, you know not all abnormalities really are abnormal, and in some cases trying to fix them, trying to make them better, is going to be a bad idea. And I think that uh, low hemoglobin during pregnancy is a good example of that should be noted. Uh, and probably many listeners know this already, that during pregnancy, the anemia, anemia that we see uh, during a normal pregnancy um, is actually accompanied by increased production of red blood cells. So there's actually more red blood cells in the circulating, uh, you know, circulation of a, a quote-unquote normal pregnant woman. Uh, but we do see a relative, what looks like an anemia, because uh, the plasma volume expands even more than the number of red blood cells. So again, this is normal. It's good. We can imagine there may be some adaptive benefits to having increased circulating blood volume. It may allow a woman to accommodate having a you know a growing fetus that has increased nutrient and oxygen needs. And um, you could you could imagine that having an increased circulating blood volume during pregnancy may be particularly good. Um, for the bleeding complications that happen during pregnancy, it might indeed help people uh, and women uh, survive uh, hemorrhage. So now we have two examples. We have pregnancy and we have high altitude in which we expect to see some changes of you know, physiologic parameters. And those changes are might be considered normal. Fixing them is not a good idea. Um, trying to, you know, trying to treat people that have these quote-unquote abnormalities would be a bad idea. So I, I would argue that these things are uh, new normals. Um, these are normal changes that we expect to see uh, as part of you know, adaptive human physiology. So I started off this uh, section talking about you know, infection and sepsis and how I always thought it was so curious uh, that um, both you know, during my medical education in medical school and residency, uh, and during, um, you know, textbooks, uh, the way they treat this topic, um, sepsis really is viewed as a maladaptive state. Uh, something that really does, um, begs the question of what the heck's going on here? Why should we, why should this be such a universal, uh, you know, these, the findings that we see during sepsis and which are the ones that would benefit from, um, doing some sort of uh, you know, intervention. So I have uh, you know, some findings that we, um, that we see in, uh, in patients with sepsis. And this is, uh, again, based on um, work that I'm doing with uh, colleagues at the University of New Mexico, as well as colleagues elsewhere. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly give um, everybody credit at the end of this talk. Uh, but some of the things that we see are that lactate uh, goes up. So lactate is a um, sort of a, a finding that we see with a change in metabolism in the body. Um, lactic acidosis is uh, a phenomenon that um, was certainly taught to me as being an abnormal uh, state. Uh, it is true that the higher the lactate level, uh, the more that someone's likely to die of um, you know, septic sepsis or septic shock. So we use it as a marker, sort of marker of badness. But what does that really mean? Does that mean that, um, that we need to fix these lactate levels? Uh, perhaps and perhaps not. So we'll, we'll revisit that, that idea in a second. So a second you know, finding, which again is part of the diagnostic criteria, at least it used to be, uh, for trying to figure out um, if somebody was uh, very sick with sepsis. And this is you know, the white blood cell count uh, being high. So uh, white blood cells are important for um, 
fighting infection. And indeed, we see higher numbers of circulating white blood cells in patients that have severe infections and sepsis. So does that mean that we doctors should you know, give somebody an agent to reduce their white blood cell count? Um, you know, we can give people chemo, chemo uh, therapy kinds of things to reduce white blood cells. Um, for, for patients that have leukemia, would that be a good idea with sepsis? I mean, I think most people will recognize, of course, that having an increase in your white blood cell count is probably good for you. Um, it may be a bigger problem, and this is something that we see clinically, uh, that people that have a low white blood cell count have a higher mortality uh, than people who can mount a normal increase in white blood cell count. So um, having a leukocytosis or an elevated white blood cell count is a great candidate example of a new normal, something that we see during people with severe infections and sepsis. We don't seek to reverse it uh, you know, by you know, directly attacking a white blood cells with some sort of um, you know, agent that would do that. Uh, we treat the underlying cause. So maybe that should be the name of the game. Instead of trying to fix abnormalities, we should treat underlying causes. Um, again, with regard to white blood cell counts, most of us would agree that's a good idea. What are some other things that we see? Uh, well, we see uh, an increase in creatinine. So this is an indicator of um, you know, dysfunction or uh, malfunction of the kidneys. Um, kidneys are not processing uh, proteins and, and uh, toxins that are circulating in the blood. And as a result, we see an increase in the creatinine level. Um, these, I'm looking at some numbers that we have from uh, patients that were admitted to our hospital, and the creatinine are, levels are elevated, um, you know, sort of well beyond uh, what we think of as being normal ranges. It's, it's, it's um, extremely common to see an elevation of creatinine. So is that normal? Who knows? In terms of we're going to redefine our normals as being possibly adaptive or beneficial in this uh, in this state, um, creatinine I think is a, it's an open question, um, but we typically look at the creatinine as being something which is bad, something which which uh, correlates with mortality, and um, it certainly is not the norm that we think of an elevated creatinine as being a good thing for patients with sepsis. And then the final thing that I'll talk about is uh, glucose levels. So, people that are really sick with sepsis, a lot of times they'll have a high blood sugar. Does that mean they have diabetes? Maybe not. Um, and we see, we see levels that are incredibly high, again, oftentimes exceeding what we think of as being a, uh, the range of a normal healthy person. Uh, so that's a curious finding. Um, and there's some controversy about whether this represents an abnormality that needs to get fixed or remedied, uh, or whether it really is something which is um, perhaps a new normal. And there's a couple, uh, you know, recent article titles that I'm going to highlight to um, kind of drive this idea home. So this was work done by Hartle and uh, Joush. I'm sure I am um, butchering their names. Uh, but the, the title of the paper is, and this is with regard to hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, uh, published in the journal Nutrition. The title is Metabolic Self-Destruction in Critically Ill Patients, Origins, Mechanisms, and Therapeutic Principles. Metabolic self-destruction. Now, if something is self-destructive, I think we could infer that the authors here think that high blood sugars is bad uh, in, in these patients that are sick um, as a target for intervention. In other words, we ought to be trying to fix these people. Um, I would say that that idea is probably the dominant kind of um, mainstream uh, area of thinking, um, and most patients are probably uh, being treated by 
doctors and nurses that have this idea that super high blood sugars or even moderately high blood sugars are something to be uh, concerned about and need treatment. But there's an alternative viewpoint. Um, this is work done by Paul Merrick and Ronaldo Bellamo. Uh, these, these guys are uh, two of my heroes, uh, just doing really fantastic, uh, both basic science research as well as um, doing uh, you know, some big clinical trials. Um, really exciting, exciting work. Uh, and the title of their paper is, uh, this was published in Critical Care, um, the view, it's a viewpoint article, and it's entitled Stress, Hyperglycemia, and Essential, an Essential Survival Response. So what is it? Metabolic self-destruction or essential sur survival response? These are uh, papers by clinicians, clinician researchers, both looking at the exact same thing, coming to the exact opposite you know, point of view. Um, worth thinking about. I think you can probably sense from you know how I've been talking about this idea uh, that I tend to agree with the second viewpoint here, which is that stress hyperglycemia is an essential survival response. So we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, scientist physicians, uh, and we like to think of ourselves in terms of our, the way we treat patients as you know, being better than a witch doctor because we follow evidence. Uh, so let's take a moment just to take a look at the evidence for trying to normalize blood sugar. And uh, this is, I'm going to refer to the NICE sugar study. Uh, so this is work done by uh, Finfer and colleagues. Um, kind of amazing. This is published in 2009. And the title of this paper um, is Intensive versus Conventional Glucose Control in Critically Ill Patients, published in the New England Journal. Um, and the, you know, the acronym for the, the study was NICE Sugar. So they enrolled in this randomized controlled trial uh, 6,000 patients. This is a big trial, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, the, you know, in terms of the quality of evidence, the randomized controlled trial um, is uh, certainly something that we look for uh, that helps us guide treatment decisions. And what they found was um, they had, well, first off, they had uh, the randomization, randomized patients. <coughs> Pardon me. Randomized patients to either two arms. So in, in one, there was an intensive insulin treatment arm that really aimed to bring the blood sugar back to that of a normal person. Uh, there was a uh, less intensive insulin treatment arm uh, in which the blood sugars were allowed, permitted to remain higher. Uh, I'll just cut to the chase here. So in this study, um, they found a significant difference between the two treatment arms. And guess what? Normalizing people's high blood sugars in this, in this, uh, in this group um, caused more harm than good. So patients suffered more and actually had higher mortality uh, if they were given intensive insulin treatment. Um, so, gosh, should we be doing this? Best evidence would suggest no. Uh, having said that, I know that patients that are being admitted to the hospital right now in my in the hospital where I work, uh, they're getting uh, treated with intensive insulin. Uh, so this this really begs the question: you know, when do we what what sort of assumptions do we have about things that that that, that guide our, our treatment decisions, and what should we be doing about it? I think with regard to sugar, um, so blood sugar in particular, we should not be intensively treating people. Um, you know, why there's controversy and why these things have not yet been adopted, uh, we'll save that for another discussion. So one of the things I think that makes people tend to not adopt findings like the nice sugar 
study are that uh, people are biased uh, in terms of thinking that abnormal is bad. Uh, and people, you know, are fooled, I think, by some correlational data. So we see a lot of times with things like fever or things like high blood sugar uh, or lots of different parameters that if the more the more out of the range of, of a normal healthy person, um, the, the higher the mortality. So we see this kind of relationship. Does that mean that making them normal is a good idea? Uh, so probably not. So, so doing some sort of a normalization intervention um, oftentimes may actually increase the mortality or have no impact whatsoever. Uh, so there's good examples of that that um, coming to play too. But a lot of people, a lot of times, people just are not comfortable letting abnormal um, findings ride without treatment. Um, we physicians have a bias towards action. And this, you know, this phenomenon of being uncomfortable with abnormal findings and really wanting to fix them, uh, this, this uh, concept really, I think, owes a lot to um, uh, the concept of euboxia. So in euboxia, uh, that's you being good, box being box. Um, the idea that we have a lab printout and all the boxes are within the normal range, um, that's the idea of euboxia. And Chris Nixon um, and Michael Reed, uh, both from Down Under, have... Uh, reported on this this idea and published this concept that um, there's a certainly a bias and a preference towards your euboxia, uh, and, and that um, there's a, a thinking sort of underlying thinking that bringing everything into normal is not right. But both those uh, both those thinkers um, and researchers, you know, Chris Nixon and Michael Reed, have argued that you know trying to normalize these to, to the parameters of a normal person is not a good idea. So uh, again, this this talk really borrows a lot from uh, I, those ideas. And so the question is, when do we make people better or worse by intervening? Um, I would argue that a lot of times we make them worse. So I'm definitely in the camp of uh, thinking that um, this euboxia idea can really be misleading for a lot of people. So let's let's talk about some actual uh, studies. Besides, we've talked about blood sugar. And that was an, uh, an attempt to normalize things. So what happens in some other, uh, we'll call them abnormalities, in which there was an effort to make people normal? Does that make people better or worse? So we're going to go over just a, a few examples here. So one was that, um, you know, there was a lot of attention in the last decade to something called uh, activated protein C. And activated protein C um, is, was noted in people with sepsis to be low. And the, low, the lower uh, it was, the more people tended to die. And so maybe not too unreasonably, people thought, gosh, this is a, a treatment target. So again, this is, this will uh, date me a little bit, but you know, this came out in the uh, early 90s, and it took about a decade for people to figure out that, in fact, this intervention of giving people activated protein C uh, didn't work. Um, but there was a big randomized controlled trial published by Ranieri and colleagues in 2012 um, that showed, in fact, that um, giving people activated protein C uh, was useless, didn't make people better uh, when they were septic. So again, useless. In fact, it's really worse, worse than useless because some additional work showed that people getting activated protein C had increased bleeding complications. Bad idea. So I love this story. The story, the, the brand name is called Zygris. Um, the whole story of Zygris is an amazing one, uh, and maybe that'll be uh, podcast number two. So we can talk about other things, um, you know, 
low blood pressure being something that, that was observed to happen uh, to, pay, to trauma victims. Um, this is some, something that we still see patients getting fluids for uh, penetrating trauma or trauma in the, you know, in the field before the, they get brought to the ER or even when they continue to, to be treated in the ER. We give people fluids. We love the idea of fixing low blood pressures with fluids. A ton of work now suggests this is a bad idea. And so there's a randomized controlled trial way back in 1994, um, that's when I started medical school, uh, showing that giving people IV fluids, crystalloid, um, made them worse. So there was increased mortality. Bad idea. Shouldn't do it. Yet we still do. Um, other stuff that we see a lot of times, uh, this idea of adrenal insufficiency in sepsis and giving people low-dose low hydrocortisone to try to fix it. Uh, there was a randomized control trial published by Wang and colleagues in 2014 showing no change in 28-day uh, mortality. So I have a list of these. This is something that I like to collect um, of intervening uh, for abnormalities. And in fact, much of the time when we do this, we make people worse. They get sicker uh, or they certainly don't get any better. So I'm going to uh, kind of leave this podcast um, with... Uh, kind of a brief discussion of you know, the final final parameter that I mentioned earlier with patients that were septic. Again, these were just four laboratory findings that we see in our patients that have um, critical illness and sepsis. Um, that was that elevated creatinine. So patients seem to have some degree of kidney failure when they are very sick with sepsis. And sometimes we intervene. We give people um, you know, plasmapheresis. Uh, we do dialysis. Um, we do hemofiltration uh, in an effort to, um, you know, compensate for uh, the kidney's non non-function. Um, but I think it's worth thinking about whether uh, this creatinine or this kidney failure is um, really uh, something that we should be worried about. Um, there was a study um, that was just published. Uh, again, this these uh, the authors. One of the main authors here was Ronaldo Bellamo. He was the same author I cited earlier uh, who um, thought that stress hyperglycemia was an essential survival response. Uh, this is pretty cool work, published in March 2016 uh, in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. Uh, this study looked at the structure and function of the kidney and septic shock. So, you know, if you think that the kidney is being injured during septic shock. And if you think that this is an abnormality or an example of pathology that would benefit from making things uh, function better, then you might expect to see damage of the kidney. And this is, I think was, is a, uh, this is what the major kind of um, advance of this paper was that everybody might assume that, that we'd see histological damage of kidneys uh, of, uh, in patients undergoing septic shock. Uh, so in this one, they did an experimental study. They used sheep as a model, and they induced a septic shock model by infusing E. coli into these live sheep. Uh, then they uh, basically took renal biopsies every 24 hours, uh, or whenever the animals um, stopped producing urine. And then they sent the samples to a renal pathologist. Uh, so what they discovered was that um, kind of it's kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, they found that there was no structural dif disturbance in all the biopsies. So we couldn't find any evidence by looking of any kidney damage. Um, they also found that um, that the 
patients, sorry, patients, these are sheep, <laughs> the sheep that underwent this, you know, apparent kidney injury and, and producing less urine, that uh, there was no evidence of decreased blood flow to the kidneys, and there was no evidence of decreased oxygen being del delivered to the kidneys. So that I is a, uh, a finding which uh, contradicts one of the underlying assumptions of septic shock, which is that it is a problem of um, poor perfusion or low, low blood flow or a problem of decreased oxygen delivery to organs. So, you know, what I was taught was that um, the problem of shock in general, septic shock, uh, as we're just describing here, is that one, it's a problem of dysregulated immune system, that the immune system is attacking itself and attacking your body. Uh, and that secondly, when we see organ failure, uh, in, this, in this example, kidney failure, it's because the body is not getting enough blood and oxygen. Uh, so we've, you know, again, the new normal idea. People have tried to give extra oxygen to patients in various shock states, um, which is an idea which is being challenged now. Uh, people have tried to give blood transfusions during septic shock. doesn't seem to work. And we try to increase the blood pressure, oftentimes by giving um, IV fluids. Uh, that doesn't work either. So, the, again, that assumption that the organs aren't getting enough blood and oxygen, contradicted by the study. Um, I'll just kind of summarize what these what these uh, authors found is that you know kidney doesn't look looks normal under the microscope um, remarkably it can bounce back to pre-infection function after uh, after the insult is over so um, unlike say uh, you know if you have killed off your kidneys by ingesting a toxin like you know um, you know antifreeze or something like that um, in which you actually do see kidney damage. Here we don't see any kidney damage. We don't see uh, evidence that toxins or uh, or low blood flow or low oxygen are damaging the kidney. So you can bounce back with, with no ill effects after the initial insult is done. Uh, we don't see any evidence that the kidney itself is being damaged during sepsis. So maybe what we're seeing here in terms of decreased kidney function, maybe this is another new normal. Maybe trying to fix this problem is, is a bad idea. Uh, perhaps. No one, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say no one. Um, I, that certainly isn't a mainstream uh, point of view, something that requires more study, but it does beg the question. And I think that, you know, challenging some of the, our underlying assumptions about what is normal, what is abnormal, what we should be treating, what we should not, is a great idea. Um, so I think with that, uh, I've rambled on enough here. Um, so I am working on uh, a paper. Uh, the, the work is the new normal, and this is with... Uh, co-authors, uh, Athena Actipus and Carlo Maley. Uh, they are at Arizona State University. Um, additional co-authors on this project are Amy Boddy, also at ASU, Troy Day, uh, who... Troy hails from uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, John Fenling, who's my colleague in the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine. Mark Flynn uh, from Mark's from the Department of Anthropology, University of Missouri, and then uh, Michael Hochberg uh, uh, from Université Montpellier, Montpellier in Montpellier, France. Uh, also from the Santa Fe Institute, um, Gunther Jansen, who is. from Kiel in the Department of Evolutionary Ecology and Genetics at the Zoological Institute in Kiel. Uh, 
and Andrew Reed, who hails from uh, Pennsylvania State University, Pennsylvania.